UX Podcast Episode 301. Hello, everybody. Welcome to UX Podcast. Coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden, we are your hosts, Pat Axboom. And James Roy Lawson. Balancing business, technology, people, and society with listeners all over the world from Iraq to Syria. We are very excited today to be talking with Kim Folds and Joyce Raffler. Joyce is an early childhood development researcher committed to improving learning experiences for children in various low- and middle-income countries. And Kim is Vice President, Content Research and Evaluation at Sesame Workshop. She oversees research and evaluation on Sesame Workshop co-productions and community engagement interventions across the globe. And together, Kim and Joyce have created something that is so immensely important for all research, finding ways for research participants to experience trust and safety in research situations. And they've, of course, done this to our delight with the help of Muppets. And Muppets and Puppets, it's always going to be a lot of fun for for us that have been brought up watching Muppets. um, I wish I had the budget for something like this. Yeah, to, to bring in some actual Muppets to help with your research. But this, um, we, I, well, we both got light of this re- bit of research um, just before the summer of 2022. Um, it was, it flashed by me, shared by um, Steve Portugal. Mm. Um, and as soon as you see the Muppets um, on the front of the, of the research, you kind of just have to read it. Exactly. <laughs> it's inevitable. Yeah. So I hope that works with the podcast cover art as well, with the Muppets on it. This episode with Kim and Joyce was recorded live as part of our collaboration with Ambition Empower. Empower is a continuous learning program that rethinks how you learn new topics within the field of design. Instead of attending a conference, you attend Ambition Empower and take part in one or several tracks taught every week by industry design leaders. And for more details, visit uxpodcast.com forward slash empower. I think that any of us who've been involved in research or UX research um, have probably, hopefully, um, come into contact with consent forms. And if I think we're honest with ourselves, we've probably all been in situations where we aren't completely sure that the participant has understood just what they're agreeing to. So I wondered if you could just start us off by explaining a little about what we mean by informed consent and why it's so important. Informed consent for me is really about making sure that we don't just get the signature at the end of the form when we used to do like in-person data collection, but that I make sure that the respondents are fully aware of the costs and benefits of being involved in this um, especially vulnerable populations where, you know, time is, is, is of the essence because their time that they give me, like for, for doing, um, for giving me information about themselves or their households, they, it's time that they could use to actually secure food for their family. So I have to like, be very sure that they completely understand. And this understanding can take different forms, not just 
the where um, we understand in like most high income countries where it's like mainly about reading the form and understanding the 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 mode of communication can differ. Um, so I think that's like from like working with families um, is one of the things that um, I think informed consent is is involved with. But Kim, I think you also have another perspective. Yeah, I agree with with what everything that Joyce has said. And I would add to it because uh, from Sesame's work, from Sesame Workshop side, we do so much research directly with young children, preschoolers. So three, four, in some context, up to eight years old. And so when we talk about informed consent, of course, we want informed consent from parents and teachers, whoever we're doing research with. But we also want young children to be able to give us informed consent. And in a lot of places around the world, that's not um, that's not a common thing that children are allowed to agree or not agree to participate in something that an adult is asking of them. And so when we go into a research session with a child and their, their parent is always there and has to provide consent on their behalf, but we also want to make sure that the child is aware of what's going on and that they are free to consent or not consent into the research process, that there's no risk. They don't get in trouble if they don't feel comfortable. Um, They're not going to get in trouble if midway through they change their mind. They don't feel good. Um, For whatever reason, they want to step away. So informed consent really is making sure that everyone, regardless of the age of the person participating in the research study, is fully aware of their rights um, to lean in as much as they want or fully disengage without any risk or sort of consequence to their behavior. Because you've got, I mean, that's, that's fascinating to think about the, the fact that we have the, the legal aspect of consent in, in many countries where the adult is the only one that needs to give it because the child isn't an adult so they can't give any consent because they're not a legal entity i guess is what you, you'd say there but what you're talking about there is the is the human aspect of of this consent that it's it's not just ticking a legal box you're you're, you're making sure the the humans involved are, are giving their consent too we consider ourselves as child-centered researchers um research at, at sesame workshop is embedded through the entire life life cycle of anything we do whether it's a season of a television show or it's community engagement intervention. We do needs assessments with with families at the beginning. We do ongoing formative research where we're testing prototype content with children and parents. And then we work with Joyce and teams like New York University's Global Ties for Children to assess efficacy. And so through that, we really do say that our work in developing content is child-centered. And you can't really say that you're child-centered if you're not looking at the child as a whole human in the process and ensuring that they also um, are aware of, of their rights as a research participant. And how do you in the end, because I think that's what I struggle a lot with, even with, I mean, not vulnerable populations, is that how do I actually confirm that the cons- they, it is informed consent, that they have understood the risks? This is where, so this is how we came about the video. Um, Joyce and a colleague of ours, Tarek, who uh, once worked with our our partner in the Middle East, International Rescue Committee, um, we were working on an evaluation of a home visiting program for parents of children zero to two. And Joyce and Tarek said, you know, we don't really know that parents understand what they're consenting to. Joyce, do you want to share more about that? 
Yeah, um, we used to go to the families and with the written form. And in Arabic, uh, Arabic is a diglossic language. So it's a little bit like German where there's high German and then the spoken German and like Greek and other. So Arabic has like the, the formal form of Arabic, which is modern standard Arabic. And then there are the dialects. Um, so usually consent form in, in that study that Kim was referring to was written in the MSA version, the modern standard Arabic version. And this is a very formal way of speaking to someone. So we were worried that people are not really getting what they're consenting to. So that was one layer. Uh, the other layer is that generally Arab cultures tend to be more on the hospitable side of the spectrum where, and we were going to people's homes at the time. It was pre-COVID. Um, and so it was, we expected that it was going to be kind of difficult to say no or not consent to the research when we're in the homes of the people. Um, and so we were like, okay, let's take, stand at the door and like tell them what this is about, leave and come back. But that in practicality did not work. Are you going to be invited in anyway, aren't you? You're going to exactly. be dragged into the home because the culture. You're going to be, exactly. Yeah. You're going to be mm. invited in and they're going to give you tea um, and they're going to like, see how you're doing first and then see why you're there so it practically it wasn't working um so then we were like what if we make it more because we noticed that a lot of um, information in our culture is is trans i mean in different cultures but specifically uh our arab cultures are transmitted verbally people are, respond better to like verbal communication that like has personal interaction um and so we we thought like hey how do why don't we use the muppets do um a video in arabic and so that it's more verbal and they don't need to read and write also literacy levels varied so um the way we write a consent form um will be different than what is actually understood and that's where we came up with the idea. And can you describe the idea itself in more detail? I mean, <laughs> what did you expect the outcome to be? So our, our original idea was to like get someone um, and like communicate it in in the dialect with the Muppets, like a Q and A. Uh, and the idea, uh, and then Sesame picked up the idea because we're partners. Um, and then they 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 workshopped a script. We all we all like gave feedback on it and I mean Kim can tell you more about how the idea saw the light because she like pioneered like the execution of the idea yeah I just thought it was so thoughtful and innovative and it came at this a really amazing time where we had just run some research funded by GSMA on some caregiver facing videos where we had tested a few different things we were testing who parents trusted messages from. So we tested the same script with three different trusted messengers, a caregiver, a social worker, and a doctor. And that yielded lots of really valuable insights on who parents want to hear about from on early childhood development messaging. But then we also learned through testing the, the full course of these short form caregiver videos, which started with a short, short intro from the trusted messenger who ended up being a caregiver. And it led into a short Muppet segment where the Muppets, the Ahlan Simpson Muppets and their human 
modeled a lot of the things that the trusted messenger had just talked about in a bit more formal language. And then the outro was the caregiver coming back to really wrap up what had just happened in the Muppet scene. And so we found that parents absolutely wanted the expert to tell them sort of the science behind why uh, nutrition or gender equality or empathy are important for children's healthy development, but that it was the Muppet segment that really hit home for them. It was the informal language, the modeling of the behaviors, the modeling between adult and child. Muppets were a proxy for children in this that really had stickiness for them. And so this had just happened. We had all these learnings from these videos when, when Joyce had come with this idea and it just was like, we, we have to take these learnings from what we've understood that par- caregivers want in videos, even videos with Muppets, um, and apply that to developing this informed consent video. So we applied that very same structure to the video. So we have um, an intro from an expert. It leads into the segment where we have a Muppet researcher Um, discuss the informed consent process with two Muppets, who again, proxies for children, and their human caregiver. And they go through the process, very, very simplified language of your standard informed consent. Here's, I'm describing the study, here's what the benefits are, here what the risks. Do you agree to participate? If you don't agree, there are no risks. And we modeled it. So one of the Muppets was super excited, and she was all in. The other Muppet, he had some questions and he was uncomfortable and ultimately he decided to not participate and it was totally fine. And so we really wanted to apply those lessons to this great idea that Joyce and Tarek had come to and see if this would support the informed consent process. It's not a replacement for, you know, the more formal language. It doesn't intend to replace it, but a compliment so that parents and kids feel confident in what they're agreeing to, feel comfortable about the process. Because I know even if you feel savvy around these sort of processes, it's still a little weird, um, especially to, to Joyce's point. If I'm treating you as a guest and now you're asking me some formal stuff, will I participate? Well, what if I don't feel comfortable? But now, you know, it, it's rude to say, to say I'm not comfortable or to ask you questions. And so we wanted to really model for them in very informal ways, that it's absolutely okay to ask questions. It's okay to say no. So the, the meta aspect of this is is fascinating too. That you've you're doing research about research, <laughs> so so you you've got something that's going on doing real research, and then you're iterating or researching the the bit just before the research. So it's, yeah. it's all it's all very meta. Um, so you you I guess you have challenges with designing just this bit of research as well. Yeah, and I think Joyce can speak to it is that we designed this video in an implementation. It didn't actually work for this first study Um, because the first study, we made a pivot to all remote models or remote methods of implementation. Yeah, well, when after we were done with the with the video, we were very excited to test it out for the first study that um, we had originally come up with the idea, but we pivoted the study it was originally a home visiting program. Home home visiting very quickly is when a community health worker goes to the family and they talk to the mothers or the whatever caregivers, um, regardless of gender, of like health and nutrition ideas, uh, early child early stimulation, like what they can do with their children. So then when COVID hits, the home visiting became what what we might call phone visiting. So the visit happened over the phone. And data collection was also pivoted uh, towards being done on the phone. 
So we wanted to test out the the video, but we also, as with everything, we like test it out with the with the enumerators, the data collectors, and some of them felt like, you know what? Now that we're doing everything remotely, we're not very sure that sending the video uh, might be the best for that study. Um, and so it was a little disappointing for us, but you know, for that study, it, it didn't really work out because we had uh, the baseline, you know, the pre-intervention was done um, without the video and then the end line was going to be with the video. So like practically it wasn't um, going to work. But I think for the follow for the subsequent study, which I think Kim would know more about, they have used uh, the video. Yeah. So for the, the following study, we were able to use it. It was the following study. We're almost um, wrapping data analysis up for that is an evaluation of the television show Ahan Simpson on children's socio-emotional learning. And so we were able, because all of this was done in person, children watched the television show for 12 weeks every day in their classroom, in their preschool class, in their kindergarten classroom. And so the enumerators were able to send the videos via WhatsApp. And we found, or the enumerators, NYU and IRC, found that for families who watched the video, they had they felt a greater uh, sense of active participation. They felt like they were part of the the study as well, and that that's the dream, right? They are. There is no study without families, um, so that they felt integral to it and like an active participant um, is really the ultimate goal. A side incredible comp, um, benefit to it is that it reduced the length of consent, the length of time required for consent by about 15 minutes per family. And the study has over 3,000 families. So that's not an insignificant amount of time um, for I think like the 2,500 families who actually watch the video. So it really supported where, where it made sense, where the actual data collection process mirrored the video, it worked. The lessons learned um, are that in order for the informed consent video to work and for the informal modeling, it really does have to mirror the research process. So in thinking about how could we improve the process in the future, because for example, we're hopeful to make an American version of it with the Sesame Street Muppets, having learned so many lessons from this one, writing a whole script that covers remote data collection, that covers in person, and then making cuts. So you have, let's say, a 10-minute script that covers any range of possibilities in your research, and then ultimately maybe you have four versions of that um, that have been edited for the different context. Um, so that's there's always learnings to be had from these processes, um, and so that that's a that's a really critical one. Definitely, yeah. I think one thing I I picked up on was didn't you have um, a problem with um, data usage when you were sending this out? Um, to participants, um, mobile data. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, data is very expensive. Um, and so the video, we were hoping to keep the video under five minutes for user experience. We know that shorter videos, especially for grown-ups, um, you're, you're likely to have more engagement. But in order to make sure that we hit everything that we needed to hit, the video, the Arabic language video, I think is a little bit over six. Um, and so that increases data use. And so that was certainly an issue with access. So it's something also in implementation. How do we cover data use? Is there a way that it can be hosted on a, a data-free platform? 
Um, is there a way that we can provide a stipend for data coverage while sending the video out? This is certainly something we do for research or for implementation of any sort of intervention. If data is required, we want to make sure that data costs aren't a barrier to access. So how can we use that same thinking with the video in future use? This is the issue with research, right? The more you learn, the, the more questions emerge. <laughs> the challenge, just stumbling upon that, is fantastic that you didn't think about that beforehand. There are so many things to think about. It's just yeah. impossible. Yeah, you don't know what you don't know until yeah. you get into it and you test it. Yep. Mm. You also well, don't realize, sorry, I was saying, you, you don't realize the, the privileged research position you sit in a lot of the time. I mean, I, yeah. I've, I've never done any research with mm. kids. Um, I've, I've actually never done any research with, with um, you know, truly deprived communities i guess um so so just that is, a, is an eye-opener and then you know thinking that you know debt is not just something you know, we've all got fiber you know sat here on fiber connections here in sweden and you know, and mobile data i'm not really so worried about that maybe although i know my kids complain they're gonna run out so it's just it, yeah you you really get to think about your own research situation a bit more when you hear yeah we, we don't want barriers to access to be an issue for Respond, participants to be comfortable with the consent process and the research process itself. So it's something that we have to think about. Um, and in this case, you know, uh, recognizing the need to do a better job of it for sure. But uh, just to piggyback off of that, um, your observation is one of the, like the corner things we think about the privileged position that we go in as researchers, what questions we're gonna ask, how are we gonna ask, and the informed consent video came from that, trying to like um, use our use our privilege in a way, like in 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 to enable and empower the participants to make sure because informed consent is is so crucial in this situation because the privileged position is not just about um, internet access or access to electricity. It's also about understanding what RCTs are, what this is really about, and then trying to use that knowledge to explain um, a lot of things. So we, we did contextualize other parts of the written consent form. For example, we were worried that our participants might feel like if they say no, they won't get any of the services that um, the partner organization is providing or other partner, because they do rely on that. So we explicitly stated that. Um, and I don't, I don't claim that we have full understanding of our privileged position as researchers, but it's a crucial element that we should all be very hyper aware of um, in, in how we ask, what we ask, the safety of the data that we collect, um, and I think this is a very central piece of the work that we are trying to get better at. I think one big takeaway for me was uh, just hearing how you have one video where the child actually gives their consent, and then you have the other video where they don't give their consent, or the Muppet doesn't give their which means that you have the example of what that looks like. And I think even for the type of research that I do in, in design research, just user testing websites and stuff, people don't understand what would it look like to say no. And just giving that and them that example is so important to be able to see themselves in that position. And I think, I think actually research results themselves will be just that much better because of it, because that means people won't feel uncomfortable re really wanting to say no, but not able to. Yeah, we, we did that with, when we were workshopping the scripts both were initially, I think the original version, both were saying 
yes. And then I was like, how about we make model someone to say no? Um, because I knew that that might make people a little, more com- a little bit more comfortable saying no. Yeah, it was a great idea. And I think it's that aspect of it is probably one of the most powerful elements of the video is that it's also a child. Again, it's a child asking questions of an adult and then is free to say no. Um, and there's yeah. no shame. No one says, are you sure? Come on. You know, that sort. there's no peer pressure effect. It's just like, okay. And then we move on to the next thing, right? There's no, there's no sort of awkwardness. Um, and I think that is the real heart. Not that we want, you know, we want active participation. I feel like we focused a lot on the no, but I, I do, I think that, and Joyce and I've talked about, that's, that's the critical element of informed consent, right? That you are actually un, fully under aware of your rights to participate or not participate. Um, and I, I really think that that's the heart of the, the video that we've created for sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you, if if no one ever said no, then that's probably a failure in itself, isn't it? Because you know, some people must say no. I mean, it, it, I don't believe anything's hundred percent in that sense. Yeah, no, yeah. we've seen it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I think most of us are probably not going to be able to produce videos with Muppets um, in our our research. But um, what would be what would be the aspects of this that we could all take home from our research in that, you know, is there a way that we can, can we use videos, for example, in our research, even without uh, Muppets? Is that something that could make things better? I think we've seen it at Sesame that the power of video, there's no real substitute for the power of video. Um, it's engaging, it's communal, um, the visual aspects of it knowing that, again, that's not available to most research teams. Though I will, uh, the full playlist is available on YouTube. So, um, and we have it, I believe, in seven, eight languages now. Um, I think making sure that there, if you don't have access to video, I think there's a, there are a number of ways. I'm sure Joyce has some, some ideas too. I think um, any sort of visual complement to it, whether it's some sort of handout or um, that is informal. If you're working with communities where there are low literacy rates, making sure that it's not text-based, that you're able to translate the consent process to um, ideally text-free visual elements to really model it. And again, highlighting, we just talked about this, but highlighting that it is okay to say, to ask questions and it's okay to say no at any point in the process, not just during recruitment, if we're middle of the middle way through baseline data collection, and you're just like, you know what, this is not working for me, that you're free to, to turn around. I'm sure Joyce has some other thoughtful ideas. Um, I just think that it also depends on the context. So I think voice notes would work very well for the context where we were doing um, because it doesn't consume as much data. And there's a lot of like typical con- informed consent language that you can communicate um, via a voice note, again, to reduce the time of um, the specifics. So you say the generic stuff on a voice note that you forward, and then the specifics that are related to your specific study can be communicated in person or in another voice note. That also re- standardizes and reduces the time. Um, and the data usage. So that's another idea for for doing that. But it all depends. 
Because in our context, I think we still, unfortunately, could not get to the in-person element. But when we were doing in-person, there were times where I like had to assure the, the caregiver that she has every right to say no. And then she would say no. Just after I calmed her down that it's okay. Yeah, I know I'm a guest, but it's really okay. You're the decision maker. And then she's like, yeah, I actually don't feel comfortable, you know, which is, again, part of the understanding of the culture. Um, where we're doing the research. I honestly don't think I've ever felt this excited to actually try out the consent part of my next research <laughs> <laughs> and having all these new ideas about how to visualize more, uh, not necessarily with video as we talked about, but actually with just different ways of having like a comic book w version of the, of the consent form. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea, especially again, mm -hmm. if you want to relay the consent process to young children, using comics is a great idea. Perhaps not even just children. And, and a pre pre conversation, we were talking about the appeal of, of Muppets even for adults. So, right. You know, exactly. Fun <laughs> fun aspects to consent. Um, so informed consent sounds like it could be a winner, no matter what age you are. Adults like fun too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Joyce and Kim, for sharing your work and all these insights. It's been wonderful. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. This has been great. I noted down three words um, from that interview. Well, noted a fair few more than that, but just um, three words in particular. Culture, privilege, and trust. Um, I yeah. mean, it, it just, listening back to us talking, um, just get... I get hit in the face time and time again with with you know the the privilege that we work in most of the time and you know um where we don't have to save minutes during research situations so that people can concentrate on providing for their families um you know we we don't always have to worry about whether we send a clip a link to a video um rather than audio because of the lack mm. of bandwidth that people are going to have exactly. or yeah. you know we don't <clears throat> maybe we don't pay attention to to the cultural norms in 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 the in the home or family situation or, or you know social context like carer parent child gender i mean some of those things i think we maybe mm. bulldoze i mean ignore and run through yeah and, and people just doing things out of politeness they're inviting you in and they don't know that they can say no it's it's so fascinating for me this whole the whole thing that how what the lengths they are going to, Kim and Joyce, to actually do the right thing, to actually make sure that people understand what's going on, that they have human rights, they have the right to say no at all times. So they're they're doing so much good work beyond just the actual research and in informing people and letting people know that you are entitled to a voice, which is fascinating. Yeah, and the you know the trust or the, the respect there as well. I mean, that whole section then we talked about the "Are you sure?" question. And you don't you don't put that question mm. to them. You just you just go okay, you know, yeah. and respect and you know their their decision. Uh, you don't want to continue. That's fine. Yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say anything more because that's your decision. That's I mean, wonderful. Because it, I mean, in real life, in every everyday life, you get that question all the time. Yeah. Uh, Do you want some more food? No. Are you sure? Are mm. you gonna come? Are you gonna come with me? No. Mm. Are you sure? <laughs> or mm. I mean, thinking to research again. Yeah. You know, you've got five um, interviews booked for that day um, as part of your research project. And, you know, they come in and you, you mm. do the whole con consent thing, informed consent with them. And they say 
no, I actually don't feel comfortable with this. Mm. I mean, oh, you, you're going to panic at the fact that maybe five people have said, actually, I don't feel comfortable with this because it's going to screw up your entire research project. You maybe don't have budget to book the time or the possibility to book another five, another day because these ones mm. have said no. So you just suddenly, my brain starts unraveling about the, yeah. the, the, the ways that we ignore what you're saying is we don't have the budget to actually respect people and treat them with dignity uh, and to actually be good people. We don't have the budget for that. I, th I think what I'm, yeah. what I'm implying, Per, is mm. I, I don't think we have the culture in design or you know, design research to gather informed consent. consent. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I meant with uh, we actually don't tell people what's the reason for them participating, what is the benefit, societal benefit or some sort of larger benefit than them actually getting the cinema ticket. Mm. Um, we don't want them to understand. We just want them to answer our questions. Yeah, I mean, I, I alluded to it at the beginning or I said at the beginning that mm. most of the time this is for us in, in design research, it's been mm. a legal paper that we need to get people to sign. It's all about covering mm. the organization's backside and mm. not really about caring if someone really does consent in an informed way. Because if you did care and you were actually successful at it and, and much, much better at it, the success indicator, the key performance indicator for doing a good job with informed consent is that more people will say no and that will cost you more. Yeah. Yeah. As we said in the interview, I mean, I, mm. if, if mm. no one ever says um, no, then... Mm. I think that, I mean, 100% of anything is normally a bit suspicious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Especially when it comes to this question about informed consent mm. and getting people to actually genuinely um, understand what they're dealing with. I mean, okay, you might, you might argue that some of the things that we research are really quite innocent. And, and mm. you know, oh, maybe that sim you know, paints a picture of simplified consent. Um, mm. But... Sure, but then there's the usage question, yes. uh, what questions we ask, where the data is stored. Uh, so many things going on related to the actual interview process that people don't really understand either. Even even security risk pair. I mean, you, you, you know, like at what point would something be anonymized? I mean, are you recording it video-wise? I mean, at what point will you get rid of the video? There's, there's, there's many more yeah. things that you might want to have to understand about what the what the possible implications or possible outcomes um, that mm. might happen because you've participated. Um, I also found it fascinating that the, the actual asking of consent actually will scare people as well in cultures where you are not used to being asked. Yeah. Uh, so the fact that you're asking means that people will feel suspicious of you. Uh, and also the, the whole thing with the, is it a scam? Because you're doing it over the phone as well. How do you make sure that you get gain trust over a phone call? There are so many really difficult things to actually contend with here because sometimes if, even if you do care as much as Kim and Joyce, it's still really difficult. And you still, as they said, you make a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. But it's so important that we have this conversation and talk about it more. I feel I, feel I want to do so much more now that I, I actually talk to them. And I think that's a success for this episode is that so much insight, uh, uh, like what you started saying with privilege. Oh, why, why am I not checking my privilege more often? I, I think an, an, what I'm worried about, though, is, mm. is that um, informed consent is possibly not even possible in business environments. Mm. <laughs> 
That sounds scary. Well, I James. mean, just thinking again about the yeah. you know, budgeting and and kind of the pressure you have, and the fact yeah. that I mean, all businesses it's, there is a degree of of nudging going on and, uh, and coercion going mm. on. I mean, that's that, that's how it works. I mean, but you're just, just hoping in most situations that it's going to be uh, a mutually beneficial outcome. Um, but then that feeds into all... even if you invent the need for some. Yeah, people. yeah, but yeah. It, but it still feeds into the fact that mm. you're you know you're funneling people in a certain way. So you're you know you're always you're always bouncing like our websites our designs themselves i mean go back to the are you sure question i mean that's something we bake into our designs to kind of you know try to be reassuring you're going to delete that we mean you've argued about that before you're going to delete that are you sure Mm. it's like you know let Mm. them delete it and then make it Mm. easier for them to undo it is what we've talked about there but we 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 just do have that culture of 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 nudging towards our preferred outcome the whole time and i Mm. I think that's i think that's reflected in research as well so what episode should people listen to next 194, Research on the Fly with Sid Harrell. Oh, yeah, this is one of my favorite episodes uh, where Sid talks about her experiences doing all kinds of different user research. And she gets into uh, approaching people and, and how your body language says a lot about or how you help people gain trust for you. It's sort of what we talked about here as well. But also one of my favorite things from that episode is what you should have in your go bag a kit bag that you always have read on the ready to get with you when you want to do research often with guerrilla research yeah that was a very very useful fun episode and and sid does a lot of a lot of good stuff and reflecting as well on what she does and and um trying to always be a better researcher remember to keep moving see you on the other side So my sister asked me last week who my favorite vampire is. Okay, Pei, go on. Who is it? Yeah, I said the the Muppet from Sesame Street. She said, he doesn't count. So I said, of course, I assure you, he does. Oh...